Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Last Friday night we had our final live show of the year and it was an emotional sort of occasion I have to say. It was kind of an emotional day full stop last Friday. Yeah. Murph, how are you? Okay. Hey on, how's it going? Well it began with the Shane McGowan funeral procession going pretty much past our office here. Yeah. As it made its way along Pier Street, the Artain band stopped at one point playing Fairy Tale New York and a rainy night in Soho so all that was going on full disclosure Murph the night ended for me in a night link home from town watching the clip of Fairytale New York from the funeral service in Nina yes. the Glen Hansard Lisa O'Neill mm. one and I, I'm going to say I was sobbing for a good portion of my journey home well I messy cried about I've cried uh, while watching it on Saturday we're like full like <laughs> were, you, were you in public though? no I wasn't yeah. I wasn't I was in my kitchen were, uh, feeling yeah. a little hungover uh, quite emotionally fragile and uh, I would let's suffice to say I was not ready for it in any sh- way, shape, or yeah, form. I was at an earlier stage of that, Murph. I had yeah. a couple of drinks. Was on the way home. Was yeah. was feeling it. I was also doing that thing of. I mean, shouldn't we all just cry in public? Should 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 there be any shame attached to that? No, That's what not. I was thinking. So I'm at one stage. I'm letting the tears come, yeah. and then I'm like, no, I look like a maniac. <laughs> I just look like a bald old man, a lot older than most of the kids getting going up and down in the night link, and I'm here crying over yeah. this thing. So I was yeah. torn between. I let I I, I, I I sobbed gently, Murph. Yeah, okay. I don't think I caused a scene, but I think if anyone saw me, they think that's okay. Mm. That guy's probably just well, the neighbors the might have, The neighbors might have rung rung the police for all I know the noises I was making. <laughs> Watch in between all that, in between all that, we were at our traditional Christmas live show venue, Liberty Hall, where we had, you see, there was a lot going on. There was even a very poignant US Murph chat. His longtime broadcasting partner, Paulie Mack, was let go by KMBR in the last couple of weeks. So Brian was still feeling pretty raw mm. from all that. But I don't want to make it sound too maudlin. I realise I'm going down that track at the moment. Because into the middle of all this stepped a great of Irish football, Liam Brady, who delivered what can only be described as a tour de force, crowd pleaser of performance that had our live audience in stitches. Yes, I know. He's a comedy legend. This goes against literally <laughs> the Liam Brady persona. <laughs> <laughs> you can only play the Liam Brady that's in front of you. And the one we had was an absolute genuinely hilarious, hilarious. comic timing everything oh just unbelievable yeah. he just come from the soccer writers uh, association yeah they seem to have warmed him up nicely yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. He was ready to deliver the goods. Well, the first thing us, he said, he the, the first thing he said when he landed behind the scenes, we were like, oh, thanks, Liam, for coming. Were you, were you in the room for this? And he goes, yeah, no problem. You called me pretty late. Who cancelled Roy Keane? Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes, this guy is on it. He's going to do well. So anyway, he's got a new book out, Liam Brady, Born to be a Footballer. Uh, it took him a long time to muster up the enthusiasm for a second autobiography after his first one landed him in court, accused by a journalist of libel while Brady was still an Arsenal player. Thankfully for Liam Brady, things turned out all right. He had a friend in the highest place, it turns out. George was falling asleep. I thought he was asleep half the time. And he had a wig on. You know those wigs they have on? And he was blowing his nose all the time. And one day he looked out the window. The rain was hitting the the window panes of of the court. And he said... There shan't be many people on the terraces this weekend if this weather keeps up. (laughs) And that was the first thing he referred to football. Uh, The prosecution, the barrister, he's having a go at me. The first question, blah, 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 but why are you having a go? Did did you do this? Did you do that? And yeah, I was getting a bit, I was getting a bit under pressure. And then he said to me, do you not remember when uh, the defendant rang you and said, how are you getting on with the Irishman? And I said, well, I don't know what you mean because we had so many Irish players in the team. I said it could have meant Frank Stapleton, Dave O'Leary, and then the judge went, Pat Jennings. (laughs) (laughs) He went, Pat Rice, (laughs) Sammy Nelson. And that was the end of it. The judge killed him. He killed him. I thought he was asleep, but he wasn't. There you go. That was Liam Brady literally doing an impression of somebody blowing their nose at one point. He seemed sort of holding the, the, the nose. That was, that was just the opening. There many people on the terraces this weekend. He, he was just getting warmed up as well. There were many more. That full interview is available to World Service members tomorrow with thanks to O'Hara's Irish Craft Beer. If you're not a member yet, sign up on secondcaptains.com for five euro a month plus fat. And thank you to everyone, by the way, who came out, not just on Friday night, also to all of you who came to the Olympia and the National Stadium. That's three really big shows in the last three months and you guys packed them all out and created three really special nights. So thank you so much for that. They're they're absolutely amazing and we look forward to more of those in 2024. On Friday, August 11th, Ken, Mm. we had an email from Donald Murphy. I've mentioned it since. An Aston Villa fan who was demanding you put some respect on Villa's name. That was very early on. That yeah. must have been after the f- opening weekend, was it? August 11th? Before the first weekend? It seems like a long time ago now. Well, I've, I presume Donald's happy that this has now effectively become the Villa pod over yeah. the last week. Yeah, well, um, this... The whole End podcast with <laughs> Ken Early and Owen McDevitt. Yeah, another great performance by Villa. I mean, they were a little bit tired, I think. I mean, that Arsenal had an extra day after the midweek games and Villa obviously had run Man City off the park and then had to do the same against Arsenal managed to do it for the first half really um, by which stage they'd already scored this goal by McGinn and then kind of clung on I was looking at closely for McGinn's signature move that Rory Smith Rory Smith said he's a unique footballer he plays almost the entirety of a match at a 45 degree angle looking for someone to get into to his bounce their their ass space. yeah exactly yeah and bounce off now he didn't quite do that he did he did he did collect it on at an angle and he had a little spin there was no human there was no contact this time he didn't need it yeah he just swiveled and hit on the advice of villa's backroom staff next time john hit that one because apparently he had wasted a chance in a similar position in one of the Europa league games so um 
this is all just evidence of the high quality coaching that's going into uh, Aston Villa these days. And also, you know, couldn't help noticing. Well, it was pointed out to me by Richard Keyes. Um, <laughs> but uh, he, he, obviously, this is this is Mikel Arteta uh, against um, Unai Emery. Yeah. And I don't know if you noticed though, there was some commentary about uh, Arsenal defeating Luton. Um, apparently, according to the Daily Mail, a publication I know Richard Keyes reads, mm-hmm. uh, they had serenaded Declan Rice in the dressing room. After the late goal? After his late winner, with a rendition of Rice, Rice, Baby. Okay. Um, and according to the Daily Mail source, he said, you would have thought they'd won the league. Not just not just had a last-minute win at Little... <laughs> Not, not, not just had a last-minute win at Little Luton, said the Daily Mail source. Um, Richard Keyes notes, What a dignified celebration, Unai. Just a fist pump and a walk to the tunnel, where he later shook hands with everyone on the Gunners coaching staff. That's the way to do it. So uh, actually, by Unai Emery standards, I thought he was a madman at the weekend. He I won't say he's, he's exhorting the crowd. I think it was when the VAR decision mm. went their way, the handball. Mm. He's giving it loads to the crowd, which you don't usually see Emery do. And yeah. even the fist bump that he did at the end, it was a bit more than the normal Unai Emery celebration. I, I, didn't he used to coach? Didn't he? Use, yeah. He was employed at Arsenal at one point. See, Unai Emery is a madman. Is he? Yeah, he is a madman. He, he's but in, in the right way. You know what I mean? He's not, he doesn't, uh, he's a madman in the context of, like, if you see him, he is one of the most active and demonstrative managers on the touchline. I mean, in terms of, like, uh, absorption in the game or, or like, kind of uh, obvious demonstrative passion on the sideline, there is, there actually are not many more. Okay. Uh, you know, in terms of Rice Trice Baby, perhaps, perhaps not, you know, but the, it was very much a weekend of uh, correctness in terms of celebrations and none more so than at Everton where uh, Lewis Dobbins scored a great goal to consign Chelsea to uh, defeat. I mean, they were already winning Everton, but they, uh, you know, they knew they were going to win after this goal. Uh, And Sean Dyche, his manager, was absolutely delighted with not only Lewis Dobbin's goal, but what happened immediately afterwards. A special moment for Lewis Dobbin? Oh, absolutely delighted. You know, he's... It's a strange kind of game, tough for him as a young player. Um, and for him to score his goal, the authenticity and his re- reaction to scoring a goal was so pleasing. No silly dances, not a nonsense that everyone gets up to, in my opinion now. A group of people working very hard for a result. He runs over to the corner, you watch the team, everyone runs over in a very authentic manner just to enjoy the moment. And I'm absolutely delighted for that and the team to get involved with that. <laughs> team to get involved in that. In, in this authentic, celebrating the right way. Yeah. I have to say, I heard the Deitch clip before I saw the, the goal and the goal celebration. Yeah. So I fully expected Lewis Dobbin to turn to the halfway line and like shake everyone's hands <laughs> like yeah. Stanley Matthews. Yeah, know? well, this is the thing. This it's is like, it's all, It seemed both authentic but also quite common. Well, the, well, this is this is the thing. What did he do? He did. He ran to the corner, did an and did a knee slide. Yeah. The knee slide, by the way, is now almost compl- entirely ubiquitous, and I, I I don't I don't like it anymore. Well, I, I want I want people to, to freshen it up. I thought John McGinn's like Ian Rush style jump and a, you know like sort of a launch of the fist as well. Top class. That for me is real football celebrate football goal celebrating. 
None of this knee slide nonsense, if you ask me. Yeah. Well, the, the knee slide has ruined football. Well, the knee slide is a, is a script. It's an approved, apparently now by Sean Dyche, approved yeah. celebration script. But it is nonetheless a script. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a celebration format, mm. which you didn't used to see when when in, in Dyche's day as yeah. a football player because the pitch wasn't good enough and you would you would hit a, a, a tuffock of grass and go over over to it. Whereas now you can sort of expect to slide across that uh, rink-like surface, and that's and you see players doing it. But it but it is a uh, it's a it's a contrivance. It's a it's a also a modern it's thing, and it's wrong. But Sean Sean Dyche is comfortable with it because it's, I suppose, it's been around for long enough. But that this to um, players in the fifties and sixties would have seemed unacceptably decadent. They'd have been run out of town on a rail. Stanley Athens wouldn't have been able to go back to Blackpool if he, he knee slid even once. He thinks he must think he's a very special chap. To uh, <laughs> he's got rather a high opinion of himself. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe you know as, as things go on. I mean, dancing. You know, I've seen I've seen dancing be authentic. Um, the Eric Ten Hag after the. A league Cup final last year, of course. <laughs> I was going to say Roger Earlier Mila, this year, Roger Miller in the oh, World Cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> I think that <laughs> I, was, I, think, I think Roger Miller was being himself when he was dancing yeah, so, uh, at the corner flag. You're telling me you watched Ten Hag last February and thought there's a man you didn't think there's a man perfectly comfortable in his own skin. I just can't believe you've turned it back to Manchester already. We'll get Sorry, to that. Yeah, we'll as, get as Ken would say, we'll get to that. We'll yeah. get. We'll get to that. Um, so it was a, a, another magnificent, uh, magnificently defiant win for Everton. I mean, how long can this ten point penalty continue to inspire them? I don't know. You know, can it? Can they? Can until, take until, them all until, the way? Well, until the appeal works and they get the ten points knocked back <laughs> off in a few weeks, and then suddenly start falling down the league again. But, but it is. It, it's been. Um, They'd be tenth now. They'd be top ten. Yeah, they they would be, they would have. Is it twenty three? No. Yeah, no, that sounds right. Yeah. Points. Earlier, um, yeah. So they would be they would be in the top half. They're a top half team who's who's been un, unrighteously demoted to the bottom. Bottom of, well, they're actually not in the relegation zone anymore. Chelsea, meanwhile, yeah. Well, we'll talk a bit about uh, Chelsea with uh, Gavin and Lars. Uh, we'll be talking to them a bit later it's on. A little ten point penalty might put Chelsea in a lot of bother. There to get one yeah, well, you know, Pochettino is, is like, oh, we need to sign more players. And it's just kind of like, really, you know. That's your answer for everything, Maurizio. Yeah, uh, they're going to analyze with the sporting director and the owner. Although the owner has some has, has been doing big baseball deals. Actually, there's quite a few uh, Premier League owners doing big deals at the moment. Have you seen this? Uh, I was going to ask you about this, Owen. What's this about, like, John Henry buying PGA? As in the golf? Yeah. He's gotten involved in a team. Uh, it's like the it's like the PGA's answer to Live Golf's team uh, uh, format. Uh, format. And so Rory McIlroy now is uh, representing the Boston Green or the Boston something or other, um, with Keegan Bradley and a couple of others involved. And yes, John Henry is is stumping up some money. But honestly, the idea John Henry is one of many many people throwing money at golf uh, in a. <laughs> In a bizarre and chaotic fashion, and who knows how that will all. Unfortunately for the PGA Tour, I think a lot more people are talking about John Ram burning them for live than talking about John Henry investing yeah, in a, I think a so. team. I, we I, might, I, we I, might I, cover this uh, on the world. Well, I, I don't. I don't understand what's happening here because I was under the impression, and I'm not. I'm, I don't follow golf religiously. 
uh, really? or at all. <laughs> and I thought that the, that Live and the PGA Tour had come to an accommodation where basically the Live now controls the PGA Tour. We do do six podcasts a weekend. We do have uh, time to get into this. What I would say is I, I have a feeling the Saudis might have put more thought than the PGA Tour into... yeah. No, if, the next if, if one of that partner, if one of those two partners is getting played in all this, I think I have a feeling who it might be. Yeah, well, uh, well, you know, it's it's good for uh, it's good for John Henry that he's got something to to keep himself occupied. Meanwhile, his his Premier League team is is doing okay at the moment. They're back at the top of the league for the first time since 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, this is after beating Crystal Palace in a game which left Roy Hodgson feeling disgusted with the game, the the sport. Uh, that has been his livelihood, as he as he explained uh, afterwards on TNT. Van Dyke took the opportunity to get him the first yellow card by kicking the ball against him from a few yards away. That's very disappointing. I think if you're a Liverpool football club, you don't need players of Van Dyke's quality mm. and, 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 and status in the game to try and get a player a yellow card by just kicking the ball against him. Mm. And the second one, I thought, was a good challenge. And if it, even if it was deemed a foul, let's say it's deemed a foul, which it could be. It wasn't a yellow card offence. Mm. In fact, there's only one yellow card offence from our side that I would uh, totally agree with, and that's the one where Joachim Anderson at the end of the game gets frustrated yeah. and yeah. kicks a player from behind. That was a yellow card. We expect quite a high threshold for four fouls. That's what we're told anyway, yeah. and, and you really don't feel that yeah. that met it. We're talking way. too much about the referees. Yeah. I mean, the fact is, I'm afraid I've been in football a long time, and games like today make me realise that uh, when the day comes to leave it behind, I won't be missing anything. What? <laughs> yeah. You did just... Well, he, he never retired. I did look back at the quotes. He never actually retired when he finished with Palace last time. Yeah. So he did leave the door somewhat ajar and he has stepped back. In. You could just retire, Roy, really, <laughs> at this point, if you really, really wanted to. Well, he's disgusted by what he sees in the game these days. But I have to say the specific things he was complaining about there, I, I don't have much sympathy with him. Uh, I mean, overall, this referee, uh, he is correct, gave a lot more yellow cards to... Um, Palace, although I can't count only uh, eight, not nine, as he said, but... Um, Soft enough red. Two yellows for... But again, like he, he, he's complaining about Van Dijk kicking the ball at Jordan Ayew. The, the problem is that Jordan Ayew deliberately steps in front of the ball to stop it being to stop Van Dijk taking the free kick. So he's kind of provoked the situation, the sense that you, you see him, he, he kind of sidles, scoots over to get in the so way. So he's trying to waste time, basically. Well, he's getting in the way, and Van Dijk's like, okay, rhythm. well, if you're going to do that, then I'll do this. You know, if, if Jordan I doesn't do the... If he, if he doesn't commit the bookable offence, which is what he's doing, but he doesn't give Van Dijk the opportunity to draw attention to it by kicking the ball at him. You know what I mean? So that was kind of... That was a yellow card. And then the second one, it's also a yellow card. Remind me of the second one again. It was Harry Elliott who had just come on um, and Jordan Ayew just basically brings him down because he's on a break. He doesn't get the ball. It's like a it's a it's a yellow card for a tactical foul. Yeah, and he's just he's just got booked, you know, like a few minutes earlier. So the referee is kind of like, <laughs> what do you expect me to do? You know. So he got sent off, and there's no doubt that this was a key moment in the game. Although it's hard to separate the ten the ten men and also the arrival into the game of Harvey Elliott, who was absolutely brilliant in his uh, time on the pitch. Now, Ayu being sent off was virtually the first, I think it may have been his first involvement in the game, Elliot's that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ayu was sent off. He then proceeded to g- give an absolutely brilliant performance. And I can only conclude now, must be regarded across Asia as the best player in the world. Okay. Well, once again, 
Liverpool Football Club are hogging this 1230 uh, kickoff, yeah. which is prime time in, in China, gotcha. Vietnam, uh, Thailand, Singapore. And I'm just wondering when the other Premier League clubs are going to start demanding to have their share of the glory, which currently Harvey Elliott is... <laughs> I mean, the, the Jurgen Klopp is not letting go of his vice-like grip on the twelve thirty kickoff. Ken, there's no way he'll allow anyone else over there. my cold dead body. Yeah. Well, you know, he he is absolutely skyrocketing to to global uh, god tier, mm. the global god tier, and uh, these you know these five thirty kickoff people um, really aren't get, aren't getting a Newcastle. Look at. Newcastle haven't been seen yet in Asia. <laughs> the, uh, uh, in every Asian country, they're just looking at the. Who is this N? Like I've literally never even seen this crowd. Like who are the they? The night. Yeah. No, they're well. They to be fair to Newcastle, they were they were on a little earlier on the Sunday and playing very badly. And Kieran Trippier has had the worst four days of his top level career. Yeah. I, I he there there was a point at which uh, you know in the Tottenham game he was responsible for five consecutive goals against Newcastle. Yeah, by at Goodison, Goodison Park and um, St. James. Uh, White Hart Lane, um, as it's no longer called. Oh yeah, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Um, they, I mean, he just got absolutely murdered by Son, uh, who remember was went off in the last game crying and it looked as though he might have a serious injury. Came back and gave one of his best performances of the season. Uh, well, also, interestingly, from the left wing, that the because Ange, before their previous game, was talking about how he's an elite striker, you know, and that when he eventually hangs up the boots, he'll hopefully get that, get the status he deserves as one of the world's great forwards, you know. Yeah. Um, and then it's like, oh, actually, you might be better off in the wing after all, or a little bit, little bit wider. He did a lot of damage anyway at the weekend. Yeah, he, I mean, uh, Trippier, I don't think is in is in tremendous form, you know, based on what he was doing at Everton and what he what he did here. I mean, these, you know, these are not characteristic mistakes from him. I mean, Son actually seems to feel sorry for him because obviously they used to play together at, at Tottenham. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, he was he's described him as a friend, but, you know, I'm sorry I had to do that to him sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a friend. You, you, Trippier's really not going to want to see Son that. for a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah, look, you know, it wasn't personal. It's just, uh, it's just business. Um, so where are we? Okay, I suppose we have to, you know, we have to get there at the end, don't we? Own uh, the game that you were covering on Manchester United uh, Saturday, yeah. And there was a kind of a sense when when the, the, they won the treble of awards, <laughs> there was a there was a sense of you know, is this a bit like Carrie winning the prom queen? Um, <laughs> you know. What's going to happen next? You know, and actually, there was one person who had no doubt about what was going to happen next. There was one person oh, yeah. who knew on Thursday already what was going to happen on Saturday, and that person is sitting right across from me here, Mr. Kieran Murphy. I mean, Chelsea were in ways kind of the perfect opposition because yeah. they're not good. They're but not they're, good. They're still sort of a scalp. Yeah, 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 yeah. It still seems like oh, Chelsea. Oh, that's they, good. It feels it feels big, but. Well, actually, Chelsea, Chelsea it doesn't, it's, not, it's not justified by Chelsea's yeah. actual Like Bournemouth, on the other hand, on Saturday. <laughs> oh, that's a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, like, that is a, like a nightmare game. I mean, I, would not, I wouldn't put 20 fed on many in that game. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, United are a poor... Are, they're just... It's a poor club. It's just... It's not a good club. You know, this whole idea that, like, we'll fucking show them. Yeah! And they're like, that's not, like, you know, that's not a Premier League season. You know? I don't know wow. How, yeah. 
What happened there? Well, listen. You saw the future. The, the, literally the easiest prediction you could possibly make. Yeah. I mean... Bournemouth to win 3-0. Well, you, you didn't say Bournemouth were going to win 3-0, but you did state with utter certainty yeah. that Manchester United were not going to beat to win the Kenny game. Kenny Cunningham went for Bournemouth as well. 3-2, three, two, three, I saw. 3-2, two, yeah, which yeah. I sort of involuntarily laughed at. Then I'm thinking, why am I laughing? I've just gone for a 2-all myself. Yeah. It's, only, it's only one goal <laughs> Just one more goal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, United, like, what a joke. <laughs> but how... It's, it's, it's incredible, because it was like, it was, it was another one of those where right from the first moments of the game they were they were on the ropes like mm. you know like Borman did this thing at, at kickoff where they just booted it out for goal kick yeah yeah and everyone just like right on we go and we- then from that point it was just yeah. it, just a constant uh, pressure until like five five minutes later they were, they were winning yeah. I think it's a total baller move by the way just to kick it out of oh, the way amazing, and just say yeah. you are so bad that we want you to have the ball <laughs> you starting this move is our best possible result yeah it's a rugby tactic of anything, you know, just a deep kickoff or whatever, or twenty-two dropout, just as deep as you possibly can. Let them have it, and then it's we'll a big, it it's out. a growing thing in hurling now as well. That if you're a point up, two minutes into injury time, put the ball out of place so that the opposing team has to take a sideline ball as opposed to letting someone yeah. try and win it. You know, but yeah, I mean, it was so chaotic from start to finish, and I've al- I'd almost forgotten about it until I saw the highlights again of the, about the fourth goal, the one that was disallowed. Yeah. yeah, that was nearly the worst of a lot. And that that also, I didn't understand why it wasn't a penalty. If it, like they ruled it out for handball, yeah, but it's only a handball because um, as the forward comes through, he is he is being fouled by Onana. Like you know, he gets the ball past him. Onana fouls him, which is what knocks him off balance. Which is why he then is is kind of staggering, and his arms are all over the place, and he touches the ball with his arm before he knocks it in. But in which case is that not a a penalty in that case well they obviously decided okay we've sympathy call they've suffered enough <laughs> well you know it, it, it did seem like a, a, yeah. a poor decision but like Regulon in this game you know I mean, I mean this, this the madness of what, of what United are doing like I know that Ten Hag is like oh uh, Ten Hag after we're not consistent enough and you know he is annoyed and with the sort of the inconsistent application of the players okay fair enough and there was a lot said about Fernandez. I mean, we can get back to that. But the, um, the what are you doing picking this team? I I just didn't understand the logic of it. Why are you playing? Why are you starting Anthony Martial in a Premier League game that you don't have to start him? Well, he's, he's well, he's explained before kickoff that. Rasmus Hoyland. He's always talking about Rasmus Hoyland's minutes. I'm not sure why he's talking about his because United fans always boo when he gets taken off mm. and cheer when he comes on. So I, I don't know if he feels a bit defensive about it. But he was asked about why <laughs> not quite as it wasn't quite put like that. Ken it was more like why is Rasmus Hoyland not starting? And he said he's just can't. He's he's, he's got too many minutes. We need to give him a rest. Then obviously you could play Marcus Rashford. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but the, there seems to be a bit of he's dropped. Been dropped now for a couple of games. Yeah, well, he's he's obviously Newcastle debacle. He's doing this thing now with it's like Robert Rashford having left him in the team for months and months. What he what he was playing badly, uh, he's now been like, right, I'm going to sort of punishment drop you. You need to pull your socks up. But that's no use if you end up having to pick Marshall. Yeah, that's just it's just you know there's absolutely no sense in which Marshall is a better player. Than Rashford, you didn't happen to see uh, Damien Delaney at halftime, did you? No. He did a package on Anthony Martial, and it was funny because during the first half he was saying, "I want to do, I need to do a package on Martial," but 
do United fans want to see because everyone knows like, he's not good enough mm. is there actually any point in doing this yeah. we're kind of batting around a bit and we're thinking well there is because it shows where they are as a club this guy is still getting picked yeah. nine years later you know what I mean it actually says quite a lot so anyway he did he just did a package of uh, him giving the ball away a lot and then one hilarious attempt at pressing the was, in fairness to Marshall, it was one of those ones where he was the only one doing the pressing so he didn't really have support but he no more made an effort to get the ball it was just one of those yeah. a bit like Marcus Rashford was highlighted for last week actually and uh, yeah I think I mean it is worth drumming home yeah. this guy does still get picked and for all the money that they've, all the money they've pumped in over the years to signings they still have Anthony Marshall starting a game that they end up losing 3-0 at home against Bournemouth scuppering any momentum they might have had utterly utterly ridiculous selection decisions like, there's no point in picking him to start a game, you know, especially if you've got Ra- if you've got Rashford and Hoyland on the bench. I'm sorry, Hoyland, about the minutes you've got. You're playing this game, you know. If if you're if you're here, you're like a, a 70 million, 60 million pound signing. You, you know, young we, lad, fit as a flea. It's it's my, if it's my, if you, you can't pick Marshall. Like it's just yeah. If you get injured, what are you doing? If you get injured, then we're going to have to play one of the other two lads. Fine, but like until you get injured, I'm sorry. The other two lads are ter- uh, like their attitude is a joke. Their attitude is a stain on the club. <laughs> so I mean, like let's let's. I'm sorry, you're just going to have to get out. Rashford there. was so awful against Newcastle. Though. If he had played like that again, that was, he wasn't offering any more than Martial. He would. gave a Martial no. standard performance. Yes. Yeah. But that doesn't mean. And then, but then in. So I'm just saying, okay, you don't even have to play them. You know, you, if you if you're saying you don't want to play a striker, play an ex, play an extra midfield player. You know, play play if Bruno Fernandez falls line. You've got you've got Kobe Minu. Mm. You know what I mean? You can use you can use him in midfield. Like don't even Van the Bake. I'm looking at Van the Bake on the bench, going, well, I mean, he can't be worse than this. You know. Um, but but he kind of just can persist with this, and then this this thing he's got about the oh I need to have a right footed centre back and a left footed centre back, meaning I have to play Luke Shaw at left centre back instead of left back, meaning I've got to play Regulon. Did, did you see what Regulon did in this game? It's just really appalling. I mean that second goal that Bournemouth scored. You see Philip Billing coming from like from halfway. You can see him. He's the biggest guy on the pitch. Look at him. There he goes. And he's completely all alone. You know, Luke Shaw runs away from that area and then looks around and goes, oh no, there he is. But Reguilon hasn't bothered. Maybe Luke Shaw was under the impression it's all right because Reguilon's got him. I've got to make sure the guy in the middle, I think it's Solanke, doesn't slip in behind Harry Maguire. And I've got to cover that. And then he realizes nobody's covering Billing. I've got to cover Billing as well. And then... Is tries to run back and it's it's too late. Billing's going to beat yeah. you in the air. Um, just just unbelievable. But like self inflicted, you know. There's no. I, I don't get it. Like I don't. You've got one one Basaka on the bench. Maybe he's not fit. You got Varane. Like don't tell me. Like Maguire. You see Maguire on the, on then the was it. Did Maguire give it away for the, 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 the third Maguire goal gave it away the penalty? For the fourth goal yeah, that, that was disallowed. Yeah, yeah. The, Under know. a lot of fairness, he was given a sh- thanks for that, mate. Yeah, kind of pass. But but you know, I mean, does it really make that much difference at the end of the day if he's the left centre back or the right centre back? I don't think it does. I really, I don't think it makes that much difference. But he uh, obviously he's decided Varane shouldn't be shouldn't be at the club anymore. Anyway. Seems like a lot of bad decisions went into that. Fernandez, that you mentioned team. there. You seem to come back to him. Well, Fernandez, uh, he got booked, and that means that he can't play the Liverpool game on uh, next Sunday. Uh, Richard Keyes uh, uh, had pointed this out, accused him of deliberately getting booked. Phil Neville 
Well, I'll, I'll just go back to Keith because this has become a this has become a two way. Um, he said uh, uh, his his blog today is called "If You Had to Do the Same Again, Fernandez, Would You?" <laughs> Which <laughs> is wordy. Well, yeah, it's it's ABBA on. Ah, okay, it's, a, right. it's an ABBA reference. Uh, he, he's an ABBA fan. Uh, Keith, certainly of that generation. Yeah, I mean, I'm an ABBA fan as well, but. Uh, but uh, he's put him in there, uh, put in Abba, um, and he goes to talk about uh, what was Fernandez thinking when he spat his dummy and went into the book with seven minutes ago. Fernandez was stupid, getting booked when he did, moaning, a dereliction of his duty to his manager and club. Um, it's inconceivable he didn't know uh, that getting booked meant he'd be suspended for the game. Impossible, so why do it? I see my good mate, Phil Nev, reared up when I suggested Fernandez had done it on <laughs> reared up. I don't know if they are friends. Like he, like the like the horse on uh, the, you know, the the Ferrari logo. That's yeah. Phil Neville. He re- he reared up. Uh, I don't like know, a running I, stag. I think good mate there might might not be mm. true because I mean he, he's clearly not friends with Gary Neville. So you know it would seem a bit treacherous for Phil Neville to be friends with Richard Keys. I'd like to think both Phil and Gary are strong-minded individuals. Ken who. Might have their own pals. Maybe. Don't necessarily have to share the same group of friends. He reared up when I suggested Fernandez had done it on purpose, perhaps not wanting to be on the wrong end of another 7-0 on a ground where he manhandled an official last season, somehow getting away with it, and where he simply gave up, desperately keen to get himself off the pitch as United imploded. All those things were in my mind when I said him being sports Fernandez has got booked on purpose. But after what Phil said, I'm happy to withdraw the allegation and apologise to Fernandez. Let's leave it at him being downright irresponsible. Oh, and I read in the Mail Sun Sports Agenda column today that Sonny Jim isn't a fan of Fernandez either. A view formed after that game at Liverpool. What's all this about Sonny Jim? He refers, of course, to Sir Jim, Sir Big Jim. Yeah, uh, Sir Big Jim, who's got a new book out. Murph, I don't know if you're going to be uh, if you're going to be uh, checking out uh, Sir Big Jim Ratcliffe's new book. Uh, only one book worth buying this Christmas, of course, Ked. Uh, well, the, it's not the only book on the market. There's also uh, Grit, Rigor, and Humor. Oh, Jesus. Phil, uh, Sir, Sir Big Jim Ratcliffe's new book about the Aeneas success story, which made him one of Britain's richest men. Grit, Rigor, and Humor. Grit, Rigor, and Humor. <laughs> Could that be the worst name for a book you've ever heard? Grit, Rigor. Grit, Rigor. It's not even... Grit, Rigor. It's, it's really hard to say. There's like the T followed by the R is... is, is, is Means that there's no flow to the title. Grit, whatsoever. rigor, and humor. You, the 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 um the rhythm is is off. Yeah. Should the words rigor, be in a grit, word? and humor would rigor, be, and would humor. work better? I mean, it's still off. Hum- humor, rigor, and grit. Rigor, no, humor, and grit. I suppose he doesn't want to foreground humor because grit and rigor surely are more important to success in business than humor. There's a there's a there's a qu- humor is more a, of the and finally news news story. Grit, rigor, and laughs. <laughs> you know, uh, grit, rigor. And a whole big barrel of lash. The ideal story. <laughs> something, yeah. Rum, sodomy, and the lash. Yes. Yeah. Something, you know, that's got a pleasing yeah. cadence, you know? There's Would you believe it? Shane McGowan, a better man with words than Sir Big Jim. Out. Not his original phrase, to be fair. I think he was, he was a, it's, a re, it's more of a reference, really, than a coinage, isn't it? Rum, sodomy, and the lash. Either way. Either way. Uh, but great, great, great. Great, 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 great,
uh, is is Victor James' book, in which he makes a disparaging reference to Bruno Fernandes. Uh, he talks about being at some rugby match and some player like had a, suffered a car crash style injury and then sort of, you know, manfully took it or whatever and didn't complain. Not like Fernandez going down, clutching his face that time when he hadn't been touched at Anfield in the 7-0. Day box. Sorry, Sir Big Jim writes this. Sir Big Jim. Wow, this book takes a few tangents. Uh, yeah, well, well, grit, rigor and humor. Um, where, where's the... So he has, he imparts some business lessons. For example, um, uh, he had an adventure with friends in the remote Kimberley region of Northern Australia. Rockdove's helicopter stopped off at a refueling station in the middle of nowhere. He spotted a message on a whiteboard to any pilot passing through. Don't do dumb shit. It was a refreshingly simple <laughs> piece of advice and one that appealed to Ratcliffe's business approach. He remains a working-class man at heart with old-fashioned values. Oh, man. Don't do dumb shit. He said, that's bloody good advice. I'm going to tell everyone in my organization. That's, that comes under rigor, by the way, Murph. <sighs> Don't do dumb shit. Well, is it, is it humor as well, though? In your arse, like, it's not great, anyway. Yeah. Well, it's, if draw the Venn diagram, I think this one is in the intersection of rigor and humor. What's you know? so funny about it? Don't do dumb shit. It's a bit offbeat, isn't it? Bit left to center. Bit irreverent. It's a little bit. It's more irreverent than funny. Don't, don't do dumb shit. It's sort of like deadpan. It's like, can can you squeeze a word irreverence into that title? Great humor. Yeah. And irreverence. Irreverence no, and rigor. Rigor, irreverence and humor. <laughs> <laughs> the 71-year-old is also a ruthless operator, reports the Daily Mail. He has surrounded himself with experts, such as Sir Dave Brailsford whose marginal gains theory transformed British cycling. <laughs> pause, pause for effect. <laughs> that, I was pause say, for yeah. effect. Yeah. <laughs> These are men who do not accept failure and demand accountability. Explaining the Aeneas ethos, Ratcliffe wrote, do your job fully and well and with pride. Prepare thoroughly and if you don't know the answer to a question, say so, but never twice. Oof. Which I think means if I ask you a question, you don't know the answer to it, and then I ask you it again, you better know the answer the second time. Yeah. You can't just wallow in ignorance. Speaking uh, of ignorance, I should, of course, say that the whole Jiffy Bag incident predated Ineos's involvement in that cycling team. Yep. Just for but the record. Not, Sir, Dave not Sir, no. Sir, Sir Big Dave. Yeah. Sir Big Dave. Sir Bold Dave. Uh, but, you know, so, so it is a big week for Manchester United. They're playing Bayern Munich um, tomorrow. Bayern Munich lost 5-1 to Eintracht Frankfurt. Um, mm. Dimar Hamann said, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're normalizing this now, are we? I've been saying Just for Dietmar weeks. Dimar Hamann remarks about Bayern Munich. Didi Hamann, yeah. uh, who is one of the top two opinion formers in yes. German football with Lothar Matthäus, uh, said, uh, I've been saying for weeks they weren't that dominant. It was clear to me this would happen. Uh, said the results have been glossed over in the last few weeks. Said Hamann and possibly translated comments that don't make any sense because the results have generally been winning. I mean, they've lost three matches this season. This was obviously the worst defeat. Um, Lothar Matthäus, the other uh, uh, pillar of German football opinion, said, uh, I was on the way to the game between Borussia Dortmund and Orbi Leipzig. I heard the result on the radio. I thought he had mixed up the names. He thought it was Frankfurt 1, Bayern 5, but actually it wasn't. So uh, it's uh, tough times for Thomas Tuchel. 
Uh, but obviously, Bayern usually bounce back from these defeats in an emphatic fashion. I saw Thomas Muller was being interviewed and being asked about why are you always the one being interviewed in this situation? Mm. You know what I mean? I, I, I picture, why well, was about to have a go at Everton? I picture Seamus Coleman when things go badly for Everton. It's always the one who has to do the, you know, sackcloth and ashes act. And apparently that's Thomas Muller. I don't think Thomas Muller minds having to do that. No, fair enough. Coming on after a 5-1, coming out to the interview after a 5-1 defeat where he was left on the bench until the 66 minute. <laughs> in this <laughs> case, maybe he's I think he'd be all right with that. You know, dropping Thomas Muller is not a thing that Bayern coaches... Get away with yeah, usually. It hasn't worked out so well yeah. for No, it's okay. not no, it's, it's not good. Not good for the Bayern coaches. And suddenly Thomas Muller is there bravely fronting up again. He really is the heart and soul of that club. This guy's <laughs> left him on the bench again. <laughs> so we'll see if he leaves him on the bench at Old Trafford. Um there was uh, they they obviously have to play Liverpool next weekend. And it's it's all I mean, it, it is looking bad, that one. You know, it's the, the signs are bad. But if I think about last season, um, they went into the first game against Liverpool in a full-blown, oh my God, crisis. They'd lost the first two matches under Ten Hag and won that one, 2-1. And then went into the second one feeling great about themselves. Um, Possible title charge? After winning the, yeah, quadruple. Yep. After after winning the League Cup, we're ch- chasing the quadruple and lost uh, 7-0. So uh, these things don't always go uh, according to the prevailing wins. Hmm. of the time do you want to hear what Mystic Murph has to say about the Liverpool game next weekend oh yeah Liverpool 3 Manchester United nil. okay <laughs> well we'll see and Does you can play that one back to me on Monday come <laughs> hell or either way it's optimistic one other uh, thing to mention is uh, there was a heartwarming underdog story in Spain where uh, FC Girona hmm. are leading the Spanish league and thrash Barcelona 4-2 um, they're a city football uh, group club and uh it will be interesting to see if they can manage to win the Spanish League this year. Uh, as I feel as though if it doesn't prompt Spain's exit from the European Union, it might result in the second Spanish Civil War. <laughs> I just feel as though if Real Madrid get, get you know have the league taken away from them by City Football Group, we're going to see some big changes in Spain. We're going to see some... We're going to see some anger. Catalan, uh, oh no, Gironese uh, uh, freedom movement. <laughs> well, they, they are they are Catalonia, right? Yeah, they are. They're they? city, Sorry, city yeah. Manchester City's uh, little area of Catalonia. But uh, there was a column by Jorge Valdano, which he publishes, publishes apparently apropos of nothing. Um, Xavi is under a bit of pressure now, you know, losing to Girona. I just googled Girona. Are Girona and Barcelona rivals? Is the first uh, uh, prompted question. So fucking now they are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, he writes a column about he, referring back to Johan Cruyff. Uh, uh, as a coach, we reached another level of complicity that was strengthened in the confrontations. Uh, he at Barcelona, I first at Tenerife, and later Real Madrid. Uh, in my first season in Madrid, we were champions. In the next one, we started badly. We couldn't find a way to uh, get back on course. Since Madrid is one of the teams in the world that has the worst relationships with uh, relationship with defeat, when in the middle of the year we reached the Clasico, my situation was weak. Uh, the previous season, uh, we'd uh, beaten them with an unforgettable 5-0. But by this point, that feat had been forgotten. Uh, we had to, I had to win to survive in office. The match was even, so as a result, one all, not enough. After the game, I was climbing the stairs of the tunnel like a lost soul. I saw that Johan was waiting for me at the top, as if we had a date. After greeting me with usual affection, he went to the critical topic. You had to win, and you only drew. 
I answered that it was costing us a lot, but Johan was not there to analyze things, but rather as a friend and advisor. Do you know what you have to do? He asked. It was difficult for me to understand what he wanted to tell me because I was still in the loop thinking about the game. It was then that he gave me his infallible medicine, only in a stronger dose than the one he offered to Xavi. Go to the press conference and kill your president. For what reason? Any, make one up. Just kill him. <laughs> Johan was a genius at overcoming crises. On one occasion they were about to fire him, he leaked to the press the ten conditions that he set uh, to get out of the crisis and ended the note with a warning, otherwise I'm leaving. He took center stage and changed the axis of the controversy as if by magic. That wasn't my profile. Even he didn't have the imagination to invent a way for me to kill my president, but I appreciated that advice as if it were a generous act of friendship between two mafia friends. Uh, it is even cute to be offered a knife to kill a president who is thinking about how to kill you. In legal terms, it is called self-defense. Since I am not very smart, I appreciated the advice, but I did not carry it out. A short time later, they threw me out in the street. Moral, for Xavi, or for anyone who is in a bind, you have to listen to geniuses. So, uh, I think he's suggesting there that, uh, I think he's hinting their own that there might be a bit of a problem between Xavi and Could be. Juan Laporta at Barcelona, and that sometimes uh, the best form of defense is attack. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I said, Karen, it's Richard Keyes. Prehistoric banter. Please. It was just banter. Is not acceptable in a modern world. Do you have any regrets? None. There are some dark forces at work here. The eyes of it, the eyes of it. On today's football podcast, it is the Gavin Cooney Lars Siverton dream team you never even knew you needed in your life. Hey, Gavin, how are you? What's the crack going? Uh, Lars, how's the form? Oh, very good. How's it going, lads? Emmy Martinez, after the Aston Villa win against Arsenal, said the words, I'm a believer, mate, to his post-match inquisitor. Are you a believer in this Aston Villa team now, Lars? Uh, well, to the point where they've clearly put down a marker this week. I mean, if we were having this conversation last Monday, I probably would have said something like, yeah, they look pretty good. But, you know, the fixture list's been a bit soft. You know, they haven't really beaten anyone, any of the top teams yet. I can't really say that now, can I? I mean, that, that, that line's been taken. I mean, this sort of, as you covered last week, the sort of dismantling of Man City was just incredible. And this obviously was a very different game. They had to suffer, as is the preferred sort of local parlance. 
Uh, but they got through it. And, um, and no, it's remarkable beating Man City and Arsenal in a week when you're already right up there in the table. I mean, you, you can't not take them seriously. The caveat is still like, I'm going to go straight there. The XG, the XG is a little bit like they're not, according to the numbers, you know, the algorithm that, that Boffins uh, favor suggests that they're not the best team in the league. Uh, rather more like the fifth or, or the fifth, I think they're about sixth, they're about... Uh, so there's always a chance that there will be some regression. But the thing about these numbers is very often results will, you know, regress towards the underlying numbers. But sometimes just by being successful and having these great experiences, you build belief, you build momentum and uh, performances kind of match up with the results. You know, it can go the other way around as well. So clearly they're in a great place now. Clearly they're incredibly confident. Clearly everyone buys in 100% to what Unai Emery wants them to be. And in a season where really none of the other top teams look flawless, I think that's a great starting point for an unexpected title run. Absolutely. Whatever about expected goals, in fairness, they are actually third in the league table as well. So we should probably say that it's a fairly basic number is the amount of points that they've garnered so far and they're not number one there just yet. What they need to do is start picking up some results away from home. But their home form is absolutely ridiculous, Gavin. To win all these games in a row, to back up the Man City result with an Arsenal win is not something I necessarily saw coming, those two results back to back. No, it's incredible, isn't it? 15 wins in a row now since uh, since Arsenal won that dramatic game 4-2 at Villa Park earlier, or sorry, at the back end of last season. And exactly as Larry says, like they've won it in different ways. I mean, they just completely overwhelmed Manchester City in midweek. And I think they were, it feels churlish to say they were fortunate to draw, uh, not to draw against Arsenal. I thought Arsenal probably maybe deserved to draw out of it but they got the win and as you say um, or as Lars says um, and as Emmy Martinez said uh, they suffered uh, for it and you know like exact the question that you ask Owen like can Aston Villa maintain this I mean the parallels are being drawn with Leicester City in 2015-16 they have the same number of points after the same number of games um, and reflexively when people would ask me do I think uh, Villa will uh, can compete and win the league I say no and then people say, ask why, and then my entire argument just falls down. <laughs> and I think maybe it's just that uh, it's just that maybe like Manchester City has just bet me down. Like I've lost the ability to dream. But then, like Villa do have squad depth. You assume the injuries will hurt them at some point, but they do have sw- squad depth. They've lost Mings. They've lost Buendia uh, to long term injuries, and they haven't really broken stride. They have a they have a decent level of depth there, and then you say, well, look, if they lose key players to injury at some point, like Watkins or Martinez or Douglas Louise, they'd suffer. But that's the same for everyone. Like, t- take the goalkeeper, best midfielder, and best goal scorer out of any team, and they'll slip down the league. So, I still don't think they will win the league because uh, I said earlier that Manchester City have have bet me down, um, but they could, they absolutely could. Yeah, and they do have one of the. Um, kind of recipe for a title winning team which is um, I think a really good goalkeeper this is this is an interesting one I mean Emiliano Martinez I mean he's had one of the weirdest careers um, in football uh, that I can that I can think of I mean essentially living in total obscurity until 2020 when he was aged 28 and since then well he's now officially the best goalkeeper in the world according to FIFA um, he's a World Cup winner. He's a Copa America winner. He's he's uh, charging for the title with Aston Villa, having won the FA Cup with Arsenal, where he was promptly sold by the current Arsenal manager Mikel Arteta, who is trying to decide which one of his two inferior goalkeepers <laughs> he should play. Is this one of the great transfer errors in hindsight, which 
really passed everyone by the time going. Yeah, it's looking like it now. Uh, I've never known someone to spend so long in obscurity learning such amazing self-confidence as uh, as Emmy Martinez had. <laughs> and it definitely looks it definitely looks the case. I mean, both Raya and both Ramsdale look inferior to Martinez. I mean, obviously he shot to fame at the World Cup at the World Cup um, for Villa. He's he's made errors. Martinez has, but you know, no no more errors than uh, than Raya or Ramsdale have ha- have made. And you know, the whole uh, like. I thought Arteta was being really disingenuous at the start of the season when he said like, "Oh, we have two first choice goalkeepers," and you know, I'll uh, you know, there have been times I've wanted to twice last season I wanted to to make a change. Um, obviously, regretting that Martinez wasn't on his bench at the time, but Raya might be a little bit of an upgrade on Ramsdale. Like his like his long like his long range kicking and passing is a little bit better, but he doesn't strike you as a goalkeeper good enough to win the league and like you've like all of the title winners in recent seasons have needed a great shot stopper who'll outperform the expected goals against them to win the league really definitely that's what that's the rock upon which Liverpool have built their church um, so it looks yeah in hindsight it looks a massive error and the only question marks around Arsenal really are maybe at centre forward but definitely a goalkeeper to be fair to Michael Arteta, we should also point out that Unai Emery didn't see the potential greatness of uh, Emiliano Martinez either, as he was the Arsenal. He, he was an Arsenal when he was manager. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's it's most of all a really inspirational story. I think is he the first World Cup winning player who's been at loan at Oxford United, Sheffield Wednesday, Rotherham United, Wolverhampton Wanderers, Getafe, and Reading. I think he probably is, and I, and I and I think he he will be every squad player, or really every, certainly every you know unwanted backup goalkeeper should have a big martinez poster on their wall perhaps the one where he's uh, enjoying himself with the world cup trophy and just look at it every day and just think you know what this could be me i'm gonna go into training today and make an effort <laughs> what, if, what if everyone just started to act like Emiliano martinez i'll be a bit much what a wonderful place this world would be but just uh, just your boy lars martin odegaard mm. snuffed out by, yeah snuffed out by Unai emery's uh, cunning tactics yeah, difficult game for him. And it's something that Emery has set up Villa to do very well, is to make life difficult for players who want to operate in those sort of central spaces with uh, playing essentially four central midfielders at the same time in, in a sort of a strange box in, in, in the middle there with John McGinn especially coming inside. And you just kind of, you, you end up compressing the space and you kind of invite them because a lot of Villa's width come from the fullbacks getting forward. So you're inviting people to come on the ins- on the outside and putting crosses in. But then the centre halves are are dealing quite well with them. And yeah, no, it was a it was a difficult game for for Martinelli. He he wasn't able to to affect it the way he would like to. And I think he by his incredibly high standards, it hasn't it hasn't been his best season. I think that's fair to say. But I mean, he's been, I, I, he's, he's been doing all right, surely. Um, you're you're expecting, I think, and I'm being very harsh. I mean, I'm obviously I'm obviously for for sort of Nordic bias reasons, and also just in general, a huge fan of his. But I think it's such a demanding role to be the sort of creative, uh, technical fulcrum of a team like this. You, you you are expected to unlock the opposing defenses a couple of times every single game. That is kind of the job description, and it's. I mean, we shouldn't be very too harsh on him, I suppose. I think he's. I'm not for one minute suggesting he shouldn't be the focal point of this Arsenal team, but he's had more um, a more difficult game this season than last. I think that's not unfair to say. Is it a change that Arsenal have made, or is it just a case of? Odegaard may be struggling to sustain the form. I mean, he has been continually playing. Everyone's going to go through slumps. But do, do you think it is... Uh, I mean, there have been changes, obviously, at Arsenal. I mean, Rice has come in, although everyone you know thinks Rice is amazing. Havertz has come in. 
you know, it hasn't been quite as good as Rice, let's say. Um, is, is there something different about the way they're playing that makes it more difficult for Odegaard? I think it's possible that if you have a midfield, like last season, if you have Thomas Partey and Granit Xhaka, then Martin Odegaard, <laughs> he knows what his job is here. He knows he's the one who has a lot of freedom and can kind of drift around a little bit and find the spaces where he is the most effective. You, you seem to be suggesting he might be better with, with someone who's a bit more just of a workhorse than... Um, than Havertz, who's, who's also... Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm a big Havertz fan, and I was excited to see how the sort of dual playmaker situation of Havertz and Odegaard was going to work. And if you can make it work, I mean, that, that could look very exciting. But Arsenal have rarely been quite as fluid uh, this season as they were certainly in the first half of last season. That's, that's just obvious. And... Uh, something that's still kind of working itself out, out a little bit. But the other thing about the Odegaard thing, Martin Odegaard, and I remember this from his time at uh, Castilla and the Real Madrid second team, so much of what he does is about making other players better, about playing like little passes, uh, setting up one-twos, little through balls and stuff. So he is kind of dependent on those other players taking those chances that he creates for them and, and, and doing the right things. I mean, in, in the Real Madrid second team, he struggled a lot because there were so many of his teammates who were only interested in trying to impress the coaches to try to sort of sneak into the first team uh, squad. And, and he wasn't sort of getting the, the the help and the cooperation he was necessarily looking for. It, it, he is a very, he is a player who I think in isolation uh, doesn't always excel in the, the way you hope for. You've seen this for the Norwegian national team as well, where he plays a lot of like clever balls for, in, in some cases, Alan's the blunt instruments. Well, that's a whole other discussion that I don't think we have time for. But uh, uh, I think he is a bit of a system player, to use a very oversimplistic uh, phrase. And uh, when the system around him is working, he plays these sort of little balls that opens things up. But what you would like to see from him, and we have this frustration in Norway because we know he's obviously talented enough to do it. We would like to see him be more selfish. We would like to see him take more, ch- uh, take more shots, uh, d- d- try, try to be, play even more difficult passes. Like he's a very sensible boy, Martin Odegaard is. And there are times where you want him to be a little bit less sensible and, and go for the sort of slightly more outrageous things that we know he has the technical quality to pull off. Gavin, I made the mistake earlier in the season of predicting Everton's demise. And that was even aside from the 10-point deduction. I thought, these guys, they can't just keep scraping the bottom of this Premier League barrel. They're going to go down at some stage. Don't like anything I see about them. Of course, now every time they win yet another game, I get people tweeting me. Just straightforward tweets, just the, the match reports. It's just, <laughs> there's no comment. They're just left there, which is lots of fun for me. Um, bloody hell, Everton are, I don't know what they're doing under Sean Dyche at the moment, but something's working. Well, oh, and evidently the corrupt Premier League have taken 10 points from Everton to, to stop them winning the title. Um, it obviously helps. I mean, Goodison Park, like there's no better ground in English football, I think, to weaponize spite than, than Goodison Park. And like they have a team almost in their image in, in Dyche's Everton. I mean, they are kind of notion free. You know, the, the, one of the issues for Everton is that, you know, Mashiri pumped a load of money in and the business plan was we'll buy a load of players now and we'll go, we'll, then we'll qualify for Europe and we'll always be in Europe so the money will keep on flowing. And Dyche doesn't quite have that vaulting ambition in the sense that he liked how Lewis Dobbin uh, celebrated his goal because he didn't dance. There was just something authentic <laughs> about, uh, about his celebration. Um, They've been great, you know. I mean, the part of it is down to the recruitment has been better this season than it has been previous seasons. I know it's a low bar to, to hurdle, but Jack Harrison's been quite good for them. James Garner's been quite good for them. Other players have 
prove like Mikalenko at left back is in really good form Pickford's been excellent um, and then Jared Braithwaite at centre back you know um, obviously Matt today did a did a uh, package on him last night Harry Maguire must be looking at this man with chills down his spine you know because Gareth Southgate was there at Goodison Park he looks absolutely great and you know so many of the of the de- of the defensive implosions last season for Everton um, had Michael Keane at their heart of it so he's not in the team anymore obviously it's it's Tarkowski um, and Braithwaite so all of that is combining into Everton being extremely difficult to beat and all those cliches that were trotted out about Sean Dyche's Burnley Dyche will be very glad that they can be trotted out for his Everton team I mean, that was just an incredible moment, Gavin, last night. I was watching this on Match of the Day on the iPlayer. And I had to pause and go back and listen again to the Daesh interview. I said, did he really say that? Because, like, you have to... What do you think he was so... Uh, what do you think was so extraordinary about it? It's not... Just, it's fair enough to have certain feelings about players dancing. But I said, he said it was the thing he was the most pleased with. Like, it was not the crisp, clean strike <laughs> into the side of the net from the youngster who's just come on. That's not the thing Dyche was the most pleased with. It was the fact that he didn't dance, which I think is I, 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 it's absolutely breathtaking. I hope uh, there are some clever video editors, or maybe this could be a David Squires joint or something. Just make some kind of thing where you show great goal celebrations from the history of football in which people dance. And just Sean Dyche looking despairing, looking, uh, looking up to the heavens next to it. And it falls into this sort of strange sort of culture war stuff that he does. You know... I'm not sure this is still a thing, but certainly for a while he had banned hats. Like players were not allowed to wear hats in training, and so I mean, which just seemed like again being someone who grew up in Scandinavia, like that's not that's just you want to retain body heat. Like it's not you need to, you're not supposed to be cold. Like you need to hats are a good thing when the weather is. I mean, I hope with the recent cold snap in the UK, he allowed some hats. Uh, but it's just uh, uh, he is he is fascinating. And there is an interest because you obviously had that uh, fantastic chat with, with Sam Allardyce last week. There are certainly sort of spiritual links between them. But of course, the difference is, I think, whereas Sam Allardyce seems to think that the last 20 years just happened to other people, uh, at least Sean Dyche is proving that his methodology, which is the thing that matters, his football can still be very competitive and effective in this league. Yeah. But uh, one other difference, sorry, Kenny, is, is obviously that Sam Allardyce is quite a public dancer. Like we've seen him dance with JJ Acosta. <laughs> yes. I'm sure we've all seen him. I've all, I'm sure we've all seen him in Ibiza. Dyche, you um, hate I that. suppose there is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there is one point of difference. And the other thing, just on Dyche and Lazio, and I, I know we're probably giving Everton a little bit too much time, but... He uh, deserves on, the time. Uh, they, were, they were last on match of the day. Like, it should have been first. But on, on uh, when Lars says Sean Dyche, you know, bans hat and this cold snap, but he wants to feel the cold. Like, he wants <laughs> to feel the pain, you know, and where better to go to feel the pain in a kind of a broader, more metaphorical sense than Everton? Um, and obviously he's <laughs> hewing that suffering into, into something something quite successful. You've said that a few times now. you said that they, there's no better place to weaponize the... Spite spite and yeah. enjoy suffering what is it about can you expand on those thoughts well it's just i just i feel like goodison is at its best when it's got its backs up you know like i mean with the famous goodison roar uh, i know has been uh, more aptly described by john brune um frequently as the goodison groan you know once they've got something to to kind of come together against um definitely works in their favor like the atmosphere at that ground is is quite unique in my in my uh, in my opinion and definitely helped them stay up uh, in the Lampard season that was the thing Lampard did better than then probably the thing he did best actually was to able to to get the fans on board and almost push the push a very poor team over the line and stay up you know what else about uh, is happening at Everton now you know for uh, Farhad Mashiri and Alshir Smanov are are generally regarded as two of the 
most inept owners ever in the Premier League. You know, who has spent this much money and been this bad? You know who's making them look really good at the moment? It's Todd Bowley. Uh, Todd Bowley, <laughs> who's who spent $700 million on a baseball player on Saturday. His, Bloody good one, Otani. Well, apparently he's he's excellent. Yeah. Um, but so was Mudrick. Um, <laughs> they, they have uh, spent a billion pounds, as we know. They're 12th last season. They finished 12th. Uh, Moshiri and Usmanov, I'm looking at their record, 7th, 8th, 8th. They did eventually finish 12th in 2020, 10th. I mean, they've been outperforming. What I'm saying is that Chelsea are worse than this, like, misrule at Everton, which has been a total disaster. How long do you think it's... How long can they just keep chugging along doing this? I mean, last season, at least, when they were kind of, you know, spent all this money and then it didn't work and they were losing and losing... Um, there was a sort of a there was there was pressure there was panic. It seems as though they've just kind of got used to to living in obscurity now. Um, I'm obviously delighted to see this. Nothing against Chelsea, but I think just the way Todd Bowley made his entrance into this world uh, of European football was so abrasive and, and and ticked so many boxes of like cliched American uh, rich people. Uh, his sort of determination that this is all going to be quite easy. Because <laughs> he's been obviously had some success in completely different sports, so he will go into this sport and fix everything and make everything better. And these losers who's been doing this for decades, running football clubs, they don't know anything clearly. Because I am Todd and I am American and I know better. So seeing him fall on his face with this project in a big way early on is is obviously quite amusing. There, I, I was of the mind earlier in the season that this will be fine. It'll have to be fine because I think so many of the young players they've bought look so good, at least to my eyes, and have done where they've been before. And they've done stuff that I'm sure the sort of the boffins, the clever people, the best, the best practice lads will tell them is the best thing to do. You know, you, got, you brought the wage bill down a bit, I would imagine. You've gotten rid of some older high earners on big Abramovich era contracts. You've spent a lot of money on transfer fees, but you can, of course, amortize that over a long time. As we all know, young players always increase in value over time. So you can expect to get something back. A lot of this makes sense, but <laughs> there is a... There is a kind of football uh, know-how and knowledge that does actually matter. There's a lot of spreadsheet logic here, and but they have ended up with a squad that looks very, very young. Um, it, it, it makes me. It reminds me of. And I apologize if I made this. If I made this point before, when so, when Southampton went down, there was one of these great autopsy pieces in one of the newspapers in the UK, where an anonymous source said that the the, the, the dressing room was basically James Ward-Prowse, Theo Walcott, and a bunch of fucking children. Uh, and and I feel like we've ended up there with Chelsea. It's it's Thiago Silva, Raheem Sterling, and a bunch of kids. And then it's there's so many youngsters in there who individually look tremendous, but the, they lack know-how, they lack experience. And perhaps more importantly, they like a striker. I mean, I, I honestly think it could be simple enough that if you just put a high spec, you know, elite standard number nine in front of this team and do everything else exactly the same way this season, I think they'd be much higher up the league. They've, they've got a lot of great players, but not a good striker. And I'm not a huge Robert Sanchez fan either. And so a lot of good ingredients is there, but the balance just seems off. And they might think we have a good coach who works well with young players in the past. If we just give him time, this will be fine. But of course, 
these are human beings. They're not robots. They're not assets on a spreadsheet. If they keep reading in the paper about how bad they are, <laughs> if they keep hearing on the telly that, oh, no, they've lost again, oh, they're way down the league, that will start to erode their confidence and their faith in each other and their faith in the coach and what's going on. So it's an incredible test, I think, of Pochettino's man management skills, to which I worry about, is this the same Pochettino as we saw? He said in an interview a couple of months back, I think, with the Chelsea, I think it was with the Chelsea in-house media, that he's more balanced now. He's not as emotional, you know, he's, uh, he accepts defeat much more, he's calmer. Now, I just read that thinking, well, from a, from a sort of eat, pray, love, personal growth perspective, maybe that's good. But is that what you want from Pochettino? Do you want him to be balanced when he's trying to kick this team into shape? Would you want him to be a bit mad? I'm, I'm not sure I'm liking this new balanced Pochettino, even if it might be healthier on a personal level. So you criticised Martin Odegaard for being too sensible, and now it's Mauricio Pochettino who's too balanced. <laughs> yeah. You want everybody to just be, Martinez. be like a Emmy Martinez. Unleash the chaos. Oh, <laughs> so just do you go along with that, uh, Gavin? Is it, the, this Chelsea well, team? Just all you need to do is throw in, you know, Victor Osman or you know a, a peak Luis Suarez, and they they'd be better. I mean, is that what we're? Uh, <laughs> well, just and then the extent to which Pochettino is changing, he's now dressing like Jurgen Klopp. He was like a Klopp, Klopp cosplay at the uh, at the weekend <laughs> with the baseball cap and the giant puffer coat. Look, the general Chelsea thing, like the easy thing to do with this Chelsea enterprise is to laugh at it and that doesn't mean that that's the wrong thing to do like I mean how they're so bad having spent so much money is amazing and Todd Bowley reminds me of a guy who hears on his car radio like a, a warning on the traffic uh, bulletin that there's someone there's a there's a guy driving the wrong way down the motorway to which he scoffs and says no there's thousands of people driving the wrong way down the motorway <laughs> uh, and this is like this the absolute shambles that they've made of this is kind of amazing and it to, to Larry's point that obviously the ambition is to improve players bring in young players improve them and sell them on but that's only ever a spin-off of building a good team and like players can only look good in a in a coherent system under a coach who can cohere that system and for that you have to build you have to sign the players uh, with a view of building that squad and Chelsea haven't done that they've just got a portfolio of assets that they're strong in some positions for example in central midfield but desperately missing as Larry says um, older players and a bit of leadership they desperately need a striker I know Nkunku's going to be fit soon but he's not really an out and out number nine Ossiemen or a Piquet or Luis Suarez would, would definitely improve them but there's a wider question to ask of Pochettino is that like he's never He's never exactly been the greatest coach in the world at breaking down a low block. And that's what Chelsea have struggled with all season. There was a, it was a great stat by Adam Bates of Sky that said that this is the third time this season Chelsea have lost a game in which they've had 70% of possession. That's happened for, there's been four instances of that among the other 19 teams across the whole of the season. And this is a guy who didn't win the, and he didn't win the league at PSG. Like, you know, I mean, they, I know there's, is it fair to judge anyone on PSG? But like even PSG's other bad managers have managed to win the league, you know. So maybe that's a maybe that's a problem of uh, Lars. Is, Lars, I think, is going to disagree with me on that. But maybe that's a problem of uh, of Pochettino's coaching. No, no, I do. I I completely uh, I, I I I get that. I just but more specifically from a sort of let's make fun of Todd Bowley and the leadership at Chelsea point of view. Just squad building wise, they got like what six centre halves. 
and and Thiago Silva has to play. So you're stuck with a bunch of center halves that you don't Gee, know. He what. didn't start at Everton, I don't think. Well, more or less, but you want him to play most of the time. So you've got all these center halves that you don't really know what to do with. I guess the squad is generally built to play with three at the back. But then since Reese James and, and Chilwell tend to get injured all the time, you don't really have the wing backs you want. So you end up playing like center halves, like Colville at fullback and Yasiev at fullback. All which makes me think, instead of spending all this money on... Pro- quite promising center half. Just just drop 150 million or however much you need to get Osman or one of these big time strikers. And yeah, that would let, look more scary on the balance sheet for for Todd and the boys. But I think the the team would be in a much better place. One team we haven't talked about, Gavin. Besides you, just touching on the Pochettino Klopp um, sartorial similarities. There is Liverpool, who were not great at the weekend, but and Roy Hodgson would probably argue they didn't deserve to win, but they did win, and they've been doing a lot of that. Lately, last time they lost in the Premier League was back in September. The game against Spurs, that was at the end of September. Is Jurgen Klopp quietly building another Premier League title winning team here? And did they really lose that game, Owen? I know, I know that's technically what the results <laughs> say, but you know, sticking asterisks on, on that game with the Lewis Diaz goal. It's hard to know. I mean, obviously, they've, they've, they're picking up results and that's three wins in, what, six days, and they're top of the league now at the end of a weekend for the first time in two years. If you compare them, they don't compare well to his previous title-winning teams. You know, they were, uh, and the ones that pushed City so close to in, uh, in what, 2019 and, and 2020. They've got the same points. They've got the same points as they had in, in the 21-22 season when they um, when they lost the league by a point to City. But City have considerably fewer points than they had that season. It just looks more of a team built on individual brilliance than this co- like this slick collective machine of previous. I think that's because the midfield is still a bit of a... A mess, you know. They they still don't have a proper defensive midfielder. Endo got hooked at half time against Palace and is struggling to get up to the pitch of of Premier League action de- uh, gen- uh, generally. It is a and, massive uh, improvement though on on last season though, isn't it? I mean, even Endo has yeah. has already outscored all of the midfielders from last season. Yeah, but that's I mean that that that's a very very low bar um, to to compare them with. They have obviously improved from last season. Will they keep it going for the rest of the season? I'm not sure. It feels like a little... Liverpool, in their games, and this maybe is a kind of a strange take, but Liverpool look at their worst when games are level. Like, they don't seem to be able to control games and have that kind of ferocious jab that they used to have and put teams under pressure in the way that City and Arsenal can still do now. But when Liverpool are ahead, it's pretty easy for them to play on the counter-attack and go and add two, three goals to that. And when they're behind, they can just, well, throw caution to the wind and attack with all they have. Like, the Fulham game... A kind of a thought experiment is at where they did they they didn't really look like winning that game at two two. Then they go three two down and they can just go hell for leather and maybe they're it's, they're more likely to win when the game is in that state. So look, I mean, Allison Van Dyke, Salah, Alexander Arnold, these are the best players in their position in the Premier League at the moment, um, and they could they could genuinely fire Liverpool to the league. I just feel that there are question marks over the midfield. Um, there, there's going to be like defensive stress now with Matip injured and Kanate can't play two games in a week, it seems. So they just, because I compare them in my mind to the teams that went before them under Klopp, I think that they can't. But that's only assuming that City, you know, hit the gas in February. And maybe that's not a guarantee. Like this Liverpool team is trending for 87, 88 points. And look, if City fall back, maybe that's enough to win the league. Well, I, I fully agree with the previous speaker here, really, about the the analysis of where Liverpool are at. I think, again, having a you know, having a quick gander at the XG, they've produced the highest number in the league so far. It's clear that this attack is is producing a lot. Uh, I think, in terms of their midfield reconstruction, I 
to me, Shobosly McAllister plus one, that's two thirds of a potential title winning midfield. I think those two look great. And then whether that ends up being Endo or Gravenberg or Elliot or, or, or Jones uh, when he's fit, I mean, it's an interesting little conundrum for Klopp and something he's going to have to, he has the opportunity of changing that game by game according to what the what the game requires. I still don't fully trust them defensively as well. I think the Trent Alexander-Arnold thing is kind of working now, but like he hasn't become magically become a better defender. Uh, so, so those issues are still there. Uh, and in a number, and in a number, a normal season, and this kind of goes back to what we were saying about Aston Villa. In a normal season, uh, as in terms of what has been the norm for the last few years, where City are at one point just going to go mad and end up racking up ninety four points or something, I don't think this would be enough. But it doesn't look like it's going to be that season. There's stuff going on at City that I'm that worries me a little bit. Maybe it'll take them a bit longer. Maybe they'll drop a bit more points, and maybe the threshold for being right in the title battle and even winning it might be lower this season. And, and then I think it probably is possible for Liverpool to get there as long as the keep, team keeps producing the kind of attacking output we're seeing so far. Lars, we're going to indulge in just a few minutes of extremely niche Irish football governance talk now. So I'm going, cool. to, I'm going to do the honourable thing. And listen, you can decide. Do you want to stay in here or do you want to end your involvement in this call? I'll stay. I'll, I'll stick around. You're going to stick around? Okay, okay. I like it. I like it. Very polite. Stephen White has emailed in. Gavin, uh, Roy Barrett is the subject title. Hey lads, love to hear your thoughts on Roy Barrett's statement at the FAI AGM. The fact he doesn't see anything wrong with the payments of Jonathan Hill must beg the question, have the FAI learned anything from past transgressions? So this is Roy Barrett, who is the outgoing, well he's now the gone, FAI chairman at the uh, AGM. He accepted responsibility for the payments to Jonathan Hill in lieu of, of holiday days not taken. But that's a different thing from... Apologising for them, he said it was a good faith decision made for all. This is Barrett now. Hill did apologise for for the payments, but Barrett said this was a good faith decision made for all the right reasons. I don't apologise for the decision. I believe it was the right decision. I still think it was. I believe I had the authority to make that decision. So what he seems to be saying here is, I will take responsibility for something that I don't believe is in any way wrong. Gavin. Yeah, his line is actually is effectively I made the decision. So uh, Roy Barrett uh, quit as chairman uh, a few weeks ago, uh, just around the time that this um, that this all this all broke in the press. I think he quit the day before, actually, or definitely addressed an EGM uh, to say it was his final meeting the day before this all broke. Uh, so he didn't actually have to be at this AGM on on Saturday afternoon, but was invited along because there was bound to be loads of questions about it. So he he took the lectern and stood there for about an hour as he was cross examined from the floor. Um, and like like you say, says that um, this issue came up where Jonathan Hill uh, was uh, had holiday days that he didn't take. The FAI's employee handbook says you're not allowed to take money in lieu of that. You just lose the holiday days. But um, it eventually uh, members of the executive. He says it wasn't Hill himself. That's we've really not got, got a satisfactory answer as to how this ended up on Barrett's desk. But anyway, um, he said it was actually the right thing to do given personal circumstances relating to, to COVID and one other personal circumstance. That Hill couldn't take his holidays, so to retain and motivate um, uh, and incentivize senior staff, he said, "Look, we'll, we'll just convert it into into cash." And he said he, as chairman, believed he had the authority to make the decision. Now, the big problem with this is that this happened earlier in the year. It was in June when Sport Ireland uh, Commissioner Cozy ordered to say, "Hang on, you might have a problem here, lads, because this might take Hill's payment for the year above what you agreed it would be under the bail." out agreement with the state 
But then it wasn't until November uh, when the entire board were made aware that this was a problem. And Roy Byrd explained as to why he didn't tell the board. Firstly, he didn't expect there to be an issue with the state bailout agreement. He didn't know the full facts and how serious it was or otherwise until November. And he said he didn't go to the board because he thought it would be leaked, which is kind of amazing. You know, he might... And, that might be faultless logic. I mean, like, information does come out of the FAI board. As a journalist, am I going to criticise that? Not necessarily. Um, but I can understand where he's coming from to say it makes it difficult for people in there to do his job, to do their jobs. Uh, he, gave an, he gave an instance of how he had written to the, his board members at one point in 2021 asking them to stop leaking to make uh, because it made them look like a pub team, only to read the full... This is, this is actually crazy, Gavin. Like... I mean, yeah. for you know, not to tell your own board because you're worried they're going to leak it. I mean, first of all, you're you're concealing it from the board, which clearly you shouldn't do as a matter of basic practice. But if you're also saying this decision was completely fine, I had the authority to do it, and, and it was the right thing to do, then if it gets leaked, so what? Yeah, um, I think that yeah, that that's fair. He did, in fairness, go. He it was put to the remuneration committee of the FEI who looks after all this executive pay, and there are a couple of independent board members on there as well. So some of the board knew, but not all not all of them did know. Um, and he just to complete that, just to kind of he used this point to illustrate the culture of leaking um, at the FEI that he had written this letter to board members to tell them to stop leaking, only to read the full text of it in the Sunday Times two days later. So that was just goes to show how haunted he was by the leaks. But however, however, you know, if he expected it to be leaked, that's maybe faultless logic, but that's not a good reason for not going through this. Like, I mean, that feel, seems like a, here's like an unbelievably boring phrase with nonetheless serious ramifications as we've learned over the last few years, that's not great governance. You know, I mean, one of the great issues under John Delaney's tenure was that there were things were agreed uh, between Delaney and some board members that not all board members even knew of. Now, you know, the whole golden handcuffs deal, that is far, far more serious than this instance. But the principle, I would argue, is pretty much the same. And then you had this quite, it it was quite like a moment of theatre, really, where Roy Bart stood before the whole room and gave this valedictory speech as to where he railed against these leaks and railed against this... um, petty politicking as he would see it among the various constituencies constituencies shall I say of the FAI where people believe that you know the most important thing is their own power and their own position in the game and I think that actually did have some sympathy on the floor not that it was expressed Barrett uh, didn't get a single um, round of applause or nobody put their hands together as he as he left the stage somebody shouted out that, that this was a lecture and he just walked out of the room you know it was just a kind of uh, uh, <laughs> an unimpressive mic drop really um, but so Barrett is now gone there's a new chairman in there Tony Kyohan who was the CEO of Tesco Ireland who has um, spoke to the press afterwards and um, insisted that this kind of thing won't happen on his watch but, um, you know, Roy Barrett has agreed to go before the Oireachtas Committee on Wednesday with the rest of the FAI, where there'll be more questioning on this. And I would say that his his stance and his approach to this uh, will get a right old kicking around government buildings. What do you make of that, Lars? <laughs> Cho- choppy waters for Roy Barrett? I mean, as a, as a long-time listener and uh, World Service member, I have actually managed to sort of pick up on some bits of the sort of FAI soap opera. and You're the, following Abbottstown. I, fi- I, fi- I find it fascinating, I have to say. It does put some... Whenever we have sort of so-called controversies or squabble at the Norwegian FA, I mean, the, all the FAI stuff kind of puts it into perspective. But of course, you're right, Gavin, this doesn't sound like anywhere near the sort of wild John Delaney era, which, as a complete neutral with no skin in the game, was incredibly entertaining to, to listen to, if nothing else. We haven't got, got quite to that level yet, but um, yeah, this Oireachtas hearing will be very interesting. Listen, Gavin, great stuff. 
stuff and thank you Lars for your politeness and staying on and listening to the last few minutes of that <laughs> great stuff guys anytime any guys anytime first of all I'd like to welcome John Delaney here today trying to be critical as well being possible Building a house, you build the foundations first, the chimneys at top, the chimney for us. It's international football. As well, to, to, to John Delaney, you know, um... uh, The pleasure, the entertainment, the organisation, the skills that you take to everybody is fantastic. But you don't have a chimney unless you've got a very strong foundation. So. You see, Murph, I told you, Siverton and Cooney, it's a dream team. Could 2024 be the Siverton and Cooney year on the football podcast? I think that's football podcast. <laughs> Hot. Siverton uh, and Cooney summer. I can't believe he stayed on. I can't believe Lara stayed on for that last bit. Wow! I mean, you put him into in an invidious uh, position. We've got Abbottstown has drawn in followers all over the world. Just the whole soap opera of Abbottstown. Yeah, I was thinking as you were saying, even the word Abbottstown. It's a good title for it a a Netflix good title. documentary. It's like yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the first series will be what actually happened, but then it'll be such a success yeah. that they'll have to invent subsequent FAI crises. Because I mean, Johnson Hill are getting paid cash for you know take, not taking holidays it's not really that sexy you know so we are going to have to we, we'll start with fact hmm. but then we we have free reign to just go into fiction truth is often stranger than fiction in that place Murph <laughs> <laughs> loads more football on the way this week we've Liam Brady we have I wouldn't mind he didn't broadcast at all yesterday no TV show no podcast I thought he'd come no in here rested some, some, some really good stuff but no that's what he comes in with we've got Champions League coverage throughout the week as well that's all for World Service members so thank you guys thank you Owen. thank you Owen thank you Ken thank you Karen. thanks for listening we will chat tomorrow if you want to sign up yeah. Second Camps Podcast is also part of the ACAST Creator Network yeah, and right. all episodes on the World Service they're ad free Owen yeah. ad free The second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sports important. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.